Section 34 of Natural History, Volume 7. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Christine Rutger, June 30th, 2021, Westford, Massachusetts. The Natural History, Volume 7, by Pliny the Elder. Translated by John Bostock and Henry Thomas Riley. Section 34, Book 37, Chapters 1 to 10. The Natural History of Precious Stones. Chapter 1, The First Use of Precious Stones. That nothing may be wanting to the work which I have undertaken, it still remains for me to speak of precious stones. A subject in which the majestic might of nature presents itself to us, contracted within a very limited space, though, in the opinion of many, nowhere displayed in a more admirable form. So great is the value that men attach to the multiplied varieties of these gems, their numerous colors, their constituent parts, and their singular beauty, that, in the case of some of them, it is looked upon as no less than sacrilege to engrave them, for signets even, the very purpose for which, in reality, they were made. Others, again, are regarded as beyond all price, and could not be valued at any known amount of human wealth, so much so that, in the case of many, it is quite sufficient to have some single gem or other before the eyes, there to behold the supreme and absolute perfection of nature's work. We have already stated, to some extent, when speaking on the subject of gold and rings, how the use of precious stones first originated, and from what beginnings this admiration of them has now increased to such an universal passion. According to fabulous lore, the first use of them was suggested by the rocks of Caucasus, in consequence of an unhappy interpretation which was given to the story of the chains of Prometheus. For we are told by tradition that he enclosed a fragment of the stone in iron and wore it upon his finger, such being the first ring and the first jewel known, this being imposed as a punishment on him in remembrance of his sacrilegious crimes when released by Jupiter from the rock. Chapter 2. The Jewel of Polycrates the beginning such as this, the value set upon precious stones increased to such a boundless extent that Polycrates, the tyrant of Samos, who ruled over the islands and the adjacent shores when he admitted that his good fortune had been too great, deemed it a sufficient expiation for all his enjoyment of happiness to make a voluntary sacrifice of a single precious stone thinking thereby to balance accounts with the inconstancy of fortune, and, by this single cause for regret, abundantly to buy off every ill will she might entertain. Weary, therefore, of his continued prosperity, he embarked on board a ship, and putting out to sea through the ring which he wore into the waves, it so happened, however, that a fish of remarkable size, one destined for the table of a king, swallowed the jewel, as it would have done a bait, and then, to complete the portentous omen, restored it again to the owner in the royal kitchen, 
by the ruling hand of a treacherous fortune, for ultimately Orates, the satrap of Sardes, contrived to allure him into his power and had him crucified. The stone in this ring, it is generally agreed, was sardonyx, and they still show one at Rome, which, if we believe the story, was this identical stone. It is enclosed in a horn of gold and was deposited by Emperor Augustus in the Temple of Concord, where it holds pretty nearly the lowest rank among the multitude of other jewels that are preferable to it. Chapter 3 the Jewel of Pyrrhus. Next in note after this ring is the jewel that belonged to another king, Pyrrhus, who was so long at war with the Romans. It is said that there was in his possession an agate, a variegated Chalcedony, probably called from its variegated streaks a fortification agate upon which were to be seen the nine muses and Apollo holding a lyre, not a work of art, but the spontaneous produce of nature, the veins in it being so arranged that each of the muses had her own peculiar attribute. With the exception of these two jewels, authors make no mention of any others that have been rendered famous. We only find it recorded by them that Ismenius, the flute player, was in the habit of displaying great numbers of glittering stones, a piece of vanity on his part which gave occasion to the following story. An emerald, Smaragdus, upon which was engraved a figure of Amimini, one of the Dionades, being offered for sale in the Isle of Cyprus at the price of six golden denarii, he gave orders to purchase it. The dealer, however, reduced the price and returned two denarii, upon which Ismenius remarked, By Hercules, he has done me but a bad turn in this, for the merit of the stone has been greatly impaired by this reduction in price. It seems to have been this Ismenius who introduced the universal practice among musicians of proclaiming their artistic merit by this kind of ostentation. Thus Dionysodorus, for instance, his contemporary and rival, imitated his example in order that he might not appear to be his inferior in skill, whereas in reality he only held the third rank among the musicians of that day. Nicomachus, too, it is said, was the possessor of great numbers of precious stones, though selected with but little taste. In mentioning these illustrations by way of prelude to this book, it is by no means improbable that they may have the appearance of being addressed to those who, piquing themselves upon a similar display, become puffed up with a vanity which is evidently more appropriate to a performer on the flute. Chapter 4. Who were the most skillful lapidaries, the finest specimens of engraving on precious stones? The stone of the ring, which is now shown as that of Polacrates, is untouched and without engraving. 
in the time of Ismenius, long after his day, it would appear to have become the practice to engrave smaragdi even, a fact which is established by an edict of Alexander the Great, forbidding his portrait to be cut upon this stone by any other engraver than Pyrgotulus, who, no doubt, was the most adept in this art. Since his time, Apollonides and Cronius have excelled in it, as also Discurides, who engraved a very excellent likeness of the late Emperor Augustus upon a signet which, ever since, the Roman emperors have used. The dictator Scylla, it is said, always made use of a seal, which represented the surrender of Jugurtha. Authors inform us also that the native Intercatia, whose father challenged Scipio Emilianus, the younger Africanus, and was slain by him, was in the habit of using a signet with a representation of his combat engraved upon it, a circumstance which gave rise to the well-known joke of Stilo Preconius, who naively inquired what he would have done if Scipio had been the person slain. The late Emperor Augustus was in the habit at first of using the figure of a sphinx for his signet, having found two of them among the jewels of his mother that were perfectly alike. During the civil wars, his friends used to employ one of those signets in his absence for sealing such letters and edicts as the circumstances of the times required to be issued in his name. It being far from the unmeaning pleasantry on the part of those who received these missives, that the Sphinx always brought its enigmas, in reference to the story of Oedipus and the Sphinx, with it. The frog, too, on the seal of Maecenas was held in great terror by reason of the monetary imposts which it announced. As a later period, with the view of avoiding the sarcasms relative to the Sphinx, Augustus made use of a signet with a figure upon it of Alexander the Great. Chapter 5. The First Dactyliothecae at Rome a collection of precious stones bears the foreign name of Dactyliotheca, a Greek word signifying a repository of kings. The first person who possessed one at Rome was Scarus, the stepson of Scylla, and for a long time there was no other such collection there until at length Pompeius Magnus consecrated in the capital, among other donations, one that had belonged to King Mithridates, and which, as M. Varro and other authors of that period assure us, was greatly superior to that of Scarus. Following his example, the dictator Caesar consecrated six dactyliothecae in the temple of Venus Genetrix, and Marcellus, the son of Octavia, the sister of Augustus, presented one to the temple of the Palatine Apollo. Chapter 6. Jewels Displayed at Rome in the Triumph of Pompeius Magnus but it was this conquest by Pompeius Magnus that first introduced so general a taste for pearls and precious stones. Just as the victories gained by El Scipio and Cnaeus Manlius 
had first turned the public attention to chased silver, Adelaide tissues, and banqueting couches decorated with bronze, and the conquests of El Mummius had brought Corinthian bronzes and pictures into notice. To prove more fully that this was the case, I will here give the very words of the public registers, Octa, with reference to the triumphs of Pompeius Magnus. On the occasion of his third triumph over the pirates and over the kings and nations of Asia and Pontus that have been already enumerated in the seventh book of this work, M. Piso and M. Messala being consuls on the day before the calends of October, the anniversary of his birth, he displayed in public with its pieces a chessboard, Alvium Lessorium, made of two precious stones, three feet in width by two in length, and to leave no doubt that the resources of nature do become exhausted, I will here observe that no precious stones are to be found at the present day, at all approaching such dimensions as these, as also that there was upon this board a moon of solid gold, thirty pounds in weight, three banqueting couches, vessels for nine waiters in gold and precious stones, three golden statues of Minerva, Mars, and Apollo, thirty-three crowns adorned with pearls, a square mountain of gold with stags upon it, lions and all kinds of fruit, and surrounded with a vine of gold, as also a museum, probably meaning a shrine dedicated to the muses, adorned with pearls, with an horologe, upon the top of it. There was a likeness also in pearls of Pompeius himself, his noble countenance, with the hair thrown back from the forehead, delighting the eye. Yes, I say, those frank features, so venerated throughout all nations, were here displayed in pearls. The severity of our ancient manners being thus subdued, and the display being more the triumph of luxury than the triumph of conquest. Never, most assuredly, would Pompeius have so long maintained his surname of Magnus among the men of that day, if on the occasion of his first conquest, that of Africa, his triumph had been such as this. Thy portrait in pearls, O Magnus, those resources of prodigality that have been discovered for the sake of females only. Thy portrait in pearls, refinements in luxury, which the Roman laws would not have allowed thee to wear even, and it was in this way that thy value must be appreciated? Would not that trophy here given a more truthful likeness of thee, which thou hadst erst erected upon the Pyrenean mountain heights? Assuredly such a portrait as this had been no less than a downright ignominy and disgrace were we not bound to behold in it a menacing presage of the anger of the gods and to see foreshadowed thereby the time when that head now laden with the wealth of the east was to be displayed severed from the body as was the case after the murder of pompey in egypt but in other respects how truly befitting the hero was this triumph to the state he presented two thousand millions of sisteres, to the legati and quaestors, 
who had exerted themselves in defense of the seacoast, gave 1,000 millions of sesteres, and to each individual soldier, 6,000 sesteres. He has rendered, however, comparatively excusable the Emperor Caius Caligula, who, in addition to the other feminine luxuries, used to wear shoes adorned with pearls, as also the Emperor Nero, who used to adorn his scepters with masks worked in pearls, and had the couches destined for his pleasures made of the same costly materials. Nay, we have no longer any right, it would seem, to censure the employment of drinking cups adorned with precious stones, of various other articles in daily use that are similarly enriched, and of rings that sparkle with gems. For what species of luxury can there be thought of that was not more innocent in its results than this on the part of Pompeius? Chapter 7 at what period marine vessels were first introduced at Rome, instances of luxury in reference to them. It was the same conquest, too, that first introduced marine vessels at Rome, Pompeius being the first to dedicate, at the conclusion of this triumph, vases and cups made of this material in the temple of Jupiter Capitolinus, a circumstance which soon brought them into private use, Waiters, even, and eating utensils made of marine being in great request. This species of luxury, too, is daily on the increase. A single cup, which would hold no more than three sextari, having been purchased at the price of 70,000 sesteres. A person of consular rank, who some years ago used to drink out of this cup, grew so passionately fond of it as to gnaw its edges even. An injury, however, which has only tended to enhance its value. Indeed, there is now no vessel in marine that has ever been estimated at a higher figure than this. We may form some opinion how much money this same personage swallowed up in articles of this description from the fact that the number of them was so great that when the Emperor Nero deprived his children of them and they were exposed to public view, they occupied a whole theater to themselves in the gardens beyond the Tiber, a theater which was found sufficiently large even for the audience that attended on the occasion when Nero rehearsed his musical performances before his appearance in the theater of Pompeius. It was at this exhibition, too, that I saw counted the broken fragments of a single cup, which it was thought proper to preserve in an urn and display, I suppose, with the view of exciting the sorrows of the world, and of exposing the cruelty of fortune, just as though it had been no less than the body of Alexander the Great himself. T. Petronius, a personage of consular rank, intending from his hatred of Nero to disinherit the table of that prince, broke a marine basin, which had cost him no less than 300,000 sesteres. But Nero himself, as it was only proper for a prince to do, surpassed them all by paying one million of sesteres for a single cup a fact well worthy of remembrance, that an emperor, the father of his country, should have drunk from a vessel of such costly price. Chapter 8. The Nature of Marine Vessels Marine vessels come from the east. 
in numerous localities of which, remarkable for nothing else, they are to be found. It is in the empire of the Parthians, more particularly, that they are met with, though those of the very finest quality come to us from Carmania. It is generally thought that these vessels are formed of a moist substance, which underground becomes solidified by heat. In size, they never exceed a small waiter abacus, and as to thickness, they rarely admit of being used as drinking cups so large as those already mentioned. The brightness of them is destitute of strength and it may be said that they are rather shining than brilliant, meaning that they are semi-transparent. But the chief merit of them is the great variety of their colors, and the wreath veins, which every here and there present shades of purple and white, with a mixture of the two, the purple gradually changing, as it were, to a fiery red, and the milk-white assuming a ruddy hue. Some persons praise the edges of these vessels more particularly, with a kind of reflection in the colors, like those beheld in the rainbow. Others again are more pleased with them when they are quite opaque, it being considered a demerit when they are at all transparent or of a pallid hue. The appearance, too, of crystals in them is highly prized, and of spots that look like warts, not prominent, but depressed, as we mostly see upon the human body. The perfume, too, of which they smell, is looked upon as an additional recommendation. Chapter 9. The Nature of Crystal It is a diametrically opposite cause to this that produces crystal, colorless crystals, quartz, or rock crystal called white stone in jewelry a substance which assumes a concrete form from excessive congelation. At all events, crystal is only to be found in places where the winter snow freezes with the greatest intensity, and it is from the certainty that it is a kind of ice that it has received the name Cristalos from Krios, cold, which it bears in Greek. The East, too, sends us crystal, there being none preferred to the produce of India. It is to be found also in Asia, that of the vicinity of Alabanda, Orthosia, and the neighboring mountains being held in a very low degree of esteem. In Cyprus also, there is a crystal, but that found upon the Alpine heights in Europe is, in general, more highly valued. According to Juba, there is crystal in a certain island of the Red Sea, opposite the coast of Arabia, called Necron. The island of the dead, as also in another neighboring island, which produces the precious stone known as topazes, where a block of crystal was extracted, he says, by Pythagoras, the prefect of King Ptolemus, no less than a cubit in length. Cornelius Bacchus informs us that in Lusitania there have been blocks of crystal found of extraordinary weight in sinking shafts in the Amenesian mountains there to a water level for the supply of wells. It is a marvelous fact stated by Xenocrates of Ephesus that in Asia and in the Isle of Cyprus crystal is turned up by the plow it having been the general belief that it is never to be found in the terrace soils, and only in rocky localities. 
That is much more probable, which the same Xenocrates tells us, when he says that the mountain streams often bring down with them fragments of crystal. Sudines says that crystal is only to be found in localities that face the south, a thing that is known to be really the fact. Indeed, it is never found in humid spots, however cold the climate may be, even though the rivers there freeze to the very bottom. Rainwater and pure snow are absolutely necessary for its formation, and hence it is that it is unable to endure heat, being solely employed for holding liquids that are taken cold. From the circumstance of it being hexagonal and hexahedral, it is not very easy to penetrate this substance, and the more so as the pyramidal terminations do not always have the same appearance. Its shape is rhombohedral and hemihedral in some of its modifications. The planes on the angles between the prism and the pyramidal terminations incline sometimes to the right and sometimes to the left, and the crystals are termed right and left-handed crystals. Dana, System of Mineralogy, Quartz. The polish on its faces is so exquisite that no art can possibly equal it. Chapter 10. Luxury Displayed in the Use of Crystal. Remedies Derived from Crystal. The largest block of crystal that has ever been beheld by us is the one that was consecrated by Julian Augusta in the capital and which weighted about 150 pounds. Sinocrates speaks of having seen a vase of crystal which held one amphora, 48 sextari. And we find other writers mentioning a vessel from India which held four sextari. For my own part, I can positively say that there is a crystal amid the crags of the Alps so difficult of access that it is usually found necessary to be suspended by ropes in order to extract it. Persons who are experienced in the matter detect its presence by certain signs and indications. Crystal is subject to numerous defects, sometimes presenting a rough solder-like substance or else clouded by spots upon it, while occasionally it contains some hidden humor within, either water, azote, rarefied oxygen, or water in combination with naphtha, or is traversed by hard and brittle nerves, which are known as salt grains. Some crystal, too, has a red rust upon it, while in other instances it contains filaments that look like flaws, a defect which artisans conceal by engraving it. But where crystals are entirely free from defect, they are preferred uncut, in which case they are known as essenteta, without flaw, and have the color not of foam but of limpid water. In the last place, the weight of crystals is a point which is taken into consideration. I find it stated by medical men that the very best cautery for the human body is a ball of crystal acted upon by the rays of the sun. This substance, too, has been made the object of a mania, for, not many years ago, a mistress of a family, who was by no means very rich, gave 150,000 sesteres for a single basin made of crystal. Nero, on receiving tidings that all was lost, in the excess of his fury, dashed 
two cups of crystal to pieces, this being his last act of vengeance upon his fellow creatures, preventing anyone from ever drinking again from those vessels. Crystal, when broken, cannot by any possibility be mended. Vessels in glass have been brought to marvelous degrees of resemblance to crystal, and yet, wonderful to say, they have only tended to enhance the value of crystal, and in no way to depreciate it. End of section 34